Welcome to the Hashtag Call to Scene podcast, the show focused on the strategic disruption of the status quo in technical organizations, communities, and events. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Hashtag Call to Scene podcast. I am, you know, sometimes I tell you I'm really excited about a guest. Well, I'm excited about this guest for so many different reasons. And anybody who's following me, you may, you do not know his name unless you've listened, but you definitely know the content because I am always sharing it. I would like to introduce you to John Bewin, the the host of um, Scene on Radio, both the Sing White series, which I incessantly share, and and men. <laughs> Um, please introduce yourself to the audience. Kim, thanks for having me. Um, so, uh, John Bewin, I'm my job. I work at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University, where I am the uh, audio program director. I mean, I'm like the radio guy, the audio guy, and now, um, so I'm a longtime public radio um, reporter, producer, documentary maker. Now, having kind of joined the stampede into podcasting a few years ago. So, um, yeah, seen on radio, uh, S C E N E. I always feel the need to, to spell it, um, for people searching on their podcast apps. Right. Uh, that's, that's our audio doc, um, podcast that I host and produced with often with, uh, lots of help, um, from here, from here at CBS. Okay. There's a lot I want to talk about. And so it, uh, before we even start recording, um, um, audience, I, he was asking me questions. I was like, no, 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 don't, because I really want, I want this to be fresh. Um, I'm so excited. So I always start with two questions. Why is it important to cause a scene and how are you causing a scene? Okay. Well, I think it's important to cause a scene because um, we have a deeply unjust world and society and it it it's way past due that it be changed and made better um and so those of us who see that in either dimly or clearly uh, need to be about need to be about putting our shoulders to the wheel and and contributing to change um how do i cause a scene i you know i i i'm not sh- totally sure i qualify for, as having is causing a scene I'm pretty calm in what I do, but, um, but I guess what I hope, um, that, that, I mean, I, I, I've, I've been doing for 30 some years, I've been a reporter and producer, and I think I always would have said that, um, you know, that I'm trying to kind of hold up a mirror to society, um, to help us all see ourselves a little more clearly and maybe a truer sense of who and what we actually are as opposed to the stories we like to tell about ourselves. But I think in particular with this work that I've been doing with the last couple of seasons of seeing white, of seeing, of seeing on radio, the seeing white series and the men series that I, that there's kind of a, I don't know, it feels like a little bit different and a kind of deeper sort of um, dive into the, into, into that sort of work um, sort of going back to basics and sort of retelling history and, and really going deep into like, who are we actually and how did we get here? But also in the process, um, 
you know, I think what's been different from what I've done in the past and from what a lot of people do who report on issues like race and, and, um, you know, gender, sexism and so on is that I've sort of been, uh, turning the lens on the groups that are, that are perpetrating them, you know, the main perpetrators and the beneficiaries of these systems. So, sort and sort of putting myself in the, in the frame in the process. So one thing I want to, um, say is you're definitely causing a scene. It does not, people have a misnomer that causing a scene has to be this loud, boisterous thing. You're definitely causing a scene. You, just how much content is packed into the Scene White series that white folks I know never knew about yeah. is causing a scene because they're like, oh shit. I did not know. So what I really want to get into is, so you've been doing this public radio stuff for, you know, a while. What, I want to give some background because you really don't talk about, except for the Minnesota series, you really don't talk about how you came to this understanding that you have and people like you have in both series because there's a, the, the racial uh, privilege and then the gender privilege. And how did you, how did you come about, because a lot of people don't even recognize it. So that's why I want you, you're the person who has been, you know, on this, this, these two pike uh, these two seasons, how did you wake up to that? And what steps said, there's something I need to do, something I have to do and something I'm going to do because people get kind of stuck. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll start by talking about seeing white because that came first, um, and it really led to the the man series, the patriarchy series. But so seeing white, some of, of a lot of it is you know is in the first episode. I, I kind of lay out um, you know some of the the series of things that in the last five years or so. Um, well, I suppose really you could probably start with Trayvon Martin, and then the other um, the series of shootings and killings of, of unarmed black folks, mostly by police and so on, and the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement. And you know, I felt like I felt like the Black Lives Matter movement in a way was um, you know, was what I felt from that was essentially it was like black folks saying to white people, like, what the hell? Like, what the fuck? Like here we are, it's 2014, 2015. Why, you know, really still like, are are you still going to just kill us for no good reason? And, um, and so then, you know, all the stuff like the, the next couple of years with the Dylan roof massacre and the, and, um, you know, Oscar's so white and it just seemed like one thing after another. And then of course the rise of Trumpism, which just felt like, um, you know, this, just a, just a huge step backwards. Um, so there was all of that that sort of made me feel like, but, but to back up further, I mean, I suppose there's a lot of, um, uh, groundwork and seeds that had to be planted long before that for me to think at that point, okay, I'm going to do a series on whiteness and da, 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 right. There was, there's a, a whole lot that had to happen before that. Um, you know, I was, I was raised by parents who were, I would grew up in a very, very white place, um, Southern Minnesota, but, um, had always been like my dad. It's interesting. This is funny that we're recording this on the day that is the anniversary of Jackie Robinson, uh, you know, 
becoming the first black player in Major League Baseball in 72 years ago today. And um, I, my, I got a text from my father, who's 85. And he said, um, you know, he noted that and he talked about how he was 13. <clears throat> and we've talked about this because my dad was very, he's in, in a completely white place, Austin, Minnesota, 19, you know, 47, he's 13 years old. And he was um, captivated and moved by the Jackie Robinson story. Also, his parents weren't like, <laughs> it's, it would be funny to say that they weren't woke, that, you know, because nobody, that was decades before anybody's using that word. They, they weren't. But somehow he just, he saw that even though that was sort of distant, right, and, and um, from, his, from his world, he saw the injustice and, and it, it kind of captured his imagination and he became a big Jackie Robinson fan. Um, and then later, you know, he, he, as he, when he's raising, I was one of five kids and when he was raising us, um, he, and he'd also gotten some lessons from the nuns that, that, uh, he went to Catholic schools and, um, and, uh, there, there was just kind of a social justice message that he'd gotten. So when he was raising his kids, there were very clear messages that I grew up with about, um, you know, that racism is, you know, this is not hard stuff, right? It's just grotesquely wrong to treat people differently and to oppress people because of their race or the color of their skin. And he would sit us down in front of, um, you know, like the Sidney Poitier movies that came on or, or, um, you know, he was a high school English teacher and he taught a raisin in the sun and sounder and, you know, these kinds of things, um, to kill a mockingbird, which, you know, I think people now see that as being maybe not quite the uh, woke work work of literature that was seen as at a long time, but but it, you know at a very basic level it was it was pretty it was pretty much you know good and evil and and the racists were the bad people right. So I grew up with that with that sense, and my parents were genuinely I've seen I've seen statistics that only about twenty percent of uh, white Americans approved of what Martin Luther King was doing when he was alive. <laughs> You know, his, his, his approval ratings shot up dramatically after he was assassinated. But my parents admired him when he was alive, right? So, so that's kind of how I grew up. And then um, I did a lot of, you know, and I, I wound up being a public radio reporter, I think, coming out of that kind of general sensibility. It's like there's a lot of injustice in the world, and I'm, I'm interested in, in a job that uh, allows me to kind of look at that and point, shine a light on it. So that, you know, that had been my orientation for a long time. But then I think, and also I had been exposed some years ago to, to the idea of people of that there were academics looking at whiteness. And probably in the 90s I read, in fact, I know that in the 90s I read the book Race Trader uh, by, um, I think that's Noel Ignatiev, I believe. Um, and so, you know, uh, I think I sort of thought of myself that way. Um, for a long time, but, but also probably, you know, as I say in the, in the series, I think I also had a, a fair bit of, um, complacency about that. I basically was one of the good ones and I was a non-racist and, and in fact, sometimes in my work was talking about racism and shining a light on racism. So really I'm, I'm good, right. You know, I'm, I'm good. I'm covered. Um, I'm clean. 
And um, so I think what was, when it came to this last few years and this kind of heightened sense that, oh my God, first of all, this stuff is deeper and more persistent than I, than I thought. It's not that I was ever in the, in the camp that because Barack Obama got elected, racism is over. I never, I never thought that, but, but now I see that I was more complacent about it than I should have been. That there was kind of a sense that racism was kind of going to kind of gradually peter out and with time and, you know, um, and now I see just how virulent and determined it is to, um, there's a, there's a whole lot of people and a whole lot of forces that would take us back. I don't know if to slavery, but would certainly go back to a deeply, you know, and overtly white supremacist society if they, if they have their way. So that's a long answer, but at a certain point, I, I, I think it was around the time that Trump got um, nominated. I still didn't think it was very likely he was going to be president. But but that was that was like the last straw. Oh, and I and I the, the other thing that's important to say is that Racial Equity Institute uh, anti-racism workshop that is in the series. I went to that um, in the beginning of 2016 as a participant, kind of nudged into it by my employer, and that helped. That really kind of crystallized a lot of this stuff about. Um, and, and gave me actually a lot of language and, and framing, kind of conceptual framing, like, okay, if you were to do a series about whiteness, this is a lot of, this is, this is, this, this is a lot of stuff. This is what you could say, right? There was kind of this clear sense of, of a gap, huge gap between the average white American and even the average kind of progressive white American, self-described, right? And the way that we see the world and the way that we see the country with respect to race, racism on the one hand and the reality on the other. And there's a big gap there. And like that, that's as a journalist, that's like, you just want to go to work when you have a gap like that. Okay. It's a very okay. long answer. No, no, no. Perfect answer. But I have to say it was interesting to hear your voice in my ears because it sounds like the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of surreal. But um, <laughs> how to unpack that? One thing that I really um, admire. And okay, so I have to say that I'm an educated black woman who has been on her shit for a long time. It wasn't until I started and I've had these often had these moments where this doesn't feel right. What is this? What, what is this thing? And I can tell you that as, what am I trying to say? What the word I'm trying to, as against the status quo, as independent, as rebellious as I've been in my life. And I, Lord have mercy. I gave my parents the blues. Um, it wasn't until I listened to that series that, I was like, oh my fucking God, that's it. <laughs> because no one talks about whiteness, period. And so it's it's like this 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 veil, this this spider web that black people in the United States have been walking through. It's been sticking to us. We're like, you know, what is this? Wiping off our faces. And we're like, what is this thing that just happened to me? What is this thing? But no one talks about it. 
And and even worse, you get gaslit because when you start questioning it, people make it seem like it's something, a defect in you. So this was the first time in a series that explicitly didn't, didn't beat around the bush, didn't call it something else, didn't play around. This is whiteness and let's talk about that. And that was just like, you do not know the level of relief I felt as a black woman growing up in the South when I started looking back at all these different things that had happened in my life, all these different experiences, and was like, this was not my fault. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That It was just like a relief, this pressure. Yeah, I'm not crazy. That, there's another black yes. woman who said that to us. Thank you. You know, it's like you... you let me know that I wasn't yes. imagining all this stuff. It is it, exactly. It is. It gets turned on you. Just even the situations or when you're at work, when you have to encounter someone of whiteness and they, the first thing they do is um, start crying or I become you're, you're, you're defensive and, de- and I'm just talking. I can, I have, we have all spent hours before such an encounter trying to figure out how to say what we need to say so it won't be seen that way and no matter how we say it it's going to be seen that way and it's always put back on us as if we've done something and we go back and we turn it inside out upside down like what could i have what could i have said differently and now that i know it's whiteness oh my god i'm just like fuck it there's nothing i could do differently and so this and then to have it not just be your experience, but you're taking scholars. You're reaching out to people who have studied this, who you've partnering with people. First of all, you're not coming in as the white savior and you're coming in and saying, Hey, I'm learning too. That was what I really got from that first episode was, you know what, this, this, this thing, and I need to bring some people along with me to help explain this thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, even in the episode when you were the, the Minnesota episode, when you had the indigenous woman, um, yeah, yeah. Yes. Talk. I was in, I still can't listen to the story about the farmer, um, when they took his land. I still can't listen to that episode. Mm. And because it's so, I have, my family has land in the, in, in South Georgia Mm. and I know how they've taken other people's land. And and how they continue to use these loopholes and and things against us. You just so so for me, and I don't give white people credit much anymore. Period. So for me to say, I genuinely want to say thank you, not because you're the white savior, but because you've leveraged your privilege to provide a, a a a point of conversation that I can't be gaslit, mm. that I can say I am not crazy and you need to listen to this shit because it's not me, it's you because you're ignorant, meaning not to know about any history, mine or your own. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. This has been so liberating. <laughs> well, that means a lot. And I, and I know from following you on Twitter that you don't, suffer fools and you, you're not, you don't go easy on white folks generally. So, so, so it does mean a lot to have you say that. Um, well, and I, and I had a lot of help and I couldn't, and I couldn't have done it. And it, and it is, of course, it's no accident either that, um, 
that either, you know, there are white scholars that have done great work, of course. And, and I think Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility is really an important mm-hmm. book. And, but it's, it's not, it's, you know, it's no accident that, that Nell Irvin Painter was the one to write, um, you know, an eminent African-American scholar to write the history of white people. Or, Nell, mm-hmm. or or Ibram Kendi to write Stand yeah. from the Beginning, the definitive history of racist ideas in America. Because, right. you know, it's, it's so, so it, it is, um, you know, these are just amazing resources. And of course, I couldn't have, couldn't have done anything like seeing white without, without folks like that having done that work. And so, so I, I was really, I saw my, you know, what I was really up to was sort of being the, the person who would kind of synthesize and present, but also, you know, just kind of be the white dude sitting there saying, hey, hey, folks, and white folks in particular, um, gather around. <laughs> let's, uh, you know, let's try to understand this thing in a different way. And and I did, and it is true, I, I, I don't remember, I, I think it, it, it um, the, the device of framing it the way that we did with, okay, we're going to look at whiteness we're going to turn the lens which was you know it's a pretty obvious metaphor but we're going to turn the lens on whiteness and 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 build a whole series based on the idea of understanding what that is how we got it um what it means how it works in the world that that if anything i I think that kind of turned out to be a more powerful frame frame than i ever really imagined until we got into it yeah, that that and it gave me the liberty to start pushing the envelope and particularly putting together some things that made sense to me. So when I tell people I don't trust whiteness by default, I love how some people get so defensive because, again, white people are need to are, are, have been set up to be individuals where everybody else is grouped together. So when I'm saying I don't see white, I don't trust whiteness by default, I mean whiteness, period. So if you don't like that, then you need to be demonstrating on the spectrum of racism, are your beha- is your behavior consistently white supremacist or anti-racist? That is your work to do because my life depends on that. Um, and white and whiteness has been given the benefit of the doubt over and over again. Expect it to be trusted just by default. And when I say that, that just like shut, shatters people. But it's because I've listened to and read the resources that you've provided in that series. And also, and I love the um, the the when Dr. Candy talks about when you guys talk about that. The whole idea that the racism came first. <clears throat> no, the economics came first. And that's just like, oh, boom, blew my mind. Because I really want to write the book because people now are just like, oh, socialism, capitalism. Da, da. These are just theories. How we've implemented it is based on white supremacy. So I would love to do a book or read a book about um Capitalism, because um, the title I have is um, um, Redefining Capitalism Without White Supremacy. Mm. Write that book. How can we be a capitalist? How do you do capital, uh, a capitalist society when it's not being re- based in slavery, when it's not being based in uh, manifest destiny, <laughs> when it's not been about oppression and, and, and eliminating hordes of people? Yeah. And, and for people who are listening to this and haven't heard um, 
our series yet, you know, what you're to spell out a little bit of what you're referring to there is, yeah. And I, I, to me, uh, that would, that was, that was new for me too. And it was a, a kind of a mind blowing, um, point that Dr. Kendi makes, which is that, um, that racist policies and practices came first. So in other words, people wanted to people. And really what we're talking about is that people wanted to enslave black people from sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and that had to do with, there's a whole story that we don't really get into there. And I think there was, there were, they, it had to do with the fact that some slave uh, markets with, from Slavs in Eastern Europe were being cut off or that there were new, you know, reasons that, that that was get it was getting tougher to do that. And so it was like, okay, we're going to go down to sub-Saharan Africa and get us some people who are going to work in our plantations for nothing. And, and so, um, the justification got tacked on to that. Okay. These are, these are less than fully human, you know, beasts and so on. Um, <clears throat> so that rather than the other way around, right. That rather than, Oh, well, let's see. Um, Oh, the, you know, like, as we say, it wasn't like they went down there as tourists and decided that these people were inferior and then said, Oh, let's enslave them. No, it was the other way around. So, yeah. so that that's, and then the, the, the point that grows out of that, which is that, you know, if you're going to enslave folks and make sure that, that you know, that, um, that they can't learn to read and write and so on and so forth, then it's easier to look at the, you know, and put, keep them in this undignified situation, then it's easier to look at them and think that they're inferior, right? So that that just perpetuates that story. Um, and as we talked about, there were people who understood that hundreds of years ago including white people who saw that even in colonial America and wrote about it. Um, but so, and, and I think, you know, people knew it was wrong. People knew what they were doing was wrong. I've been doing some recent reading about, um, uh, for the next series I'm doing on the podcast, actually, that goes back into history again. And the kind of the frame is democracy, but there's going to be a lot of stuff about, about mm -hmm. race and, and, um, and looking at, for example, the colonial, the, the constitutional convention, and the conversations yeah. they had about about slavery, every there's nobody defending slavery. They all know it's wrong. Exactly, but it was an economic it was an economic basis for it, and and, and a reason to yeah because the and that and that's the thing that gets and that's what I again I'm gonna I love this series because I'm a historian just because I, I'm just curious and I'm a researcher, but I recognize that there's so many people aren't. But to hear it in the form as a story as, on a podcast makes it very approachable for a lot of people. And a lot of people need to go back and look at the the true history, because when you look at um, the textbooks that we all were subjected to, many, particularly in the South, were <clears throat> um, the historical parts were written or um, had to be approved by the um, Daughters of Confederacy. And all of that was about um, upholding um, out, during the restoration, uh, reconstruction, excuse me, and making, sh and then that's how we got into Jim Crow and, and keeping that, those philosophies. And so when you're talking about the, the Continental Congress, I, I go back to Adam Smith. This was 1776. People were talking about this stuff then. So it's not, so everybody wants to make it seem like, okay, I'm not an absolutist. Many people <laughs> want to make it seem like that um, 
this is this was the sins of our fathers. They didn't know better. Yes, the hell they did. Stop saying that. They knew exactly what they and they made choices. And those choices were to enslave and to harm people for economic reasons. And that and to do that, you had to because if that was not if that were not the case, you wouldn't have used the Bible and all these other things to demonstrate our inhumanity because people had ethics, people had morals. So you had to make it seem like we were less than you were doing us a favor because then, then people didn't have to have that, um, const, um, that dissonance of wait, Whoa, what's going on? And you see that now with people just now talking about eugenics again, it's like, what, why are we having this conversation? Yeah. Yeah. I was about to say people used science too, and I should say bad science. And there are still people who want to use bad science. And I'm going to challenge you and say that some people, when you said about they don't want us to go back to slavery, I believe some people actually want us to go back to slavery. I do, and I don't believe that it's um, this this stereotypical white ignorant person in the South or Virginia, whatever it is. I don't. I look at I look at who is in office right now at the highest levels of our government. And because I'm a historian, I look, I can very clearly see the connections first in World War I, but definitely in World War II. I definitely see that we're repeating patterns that led up to um, Hitler and Mussolini and, and, and um, Stalin having these powers, these, these, People around them, these who, you know, were jockeying. I mean, totally see it in Rommel and all his, all Hitler's little men around him. That's what I see with, with, with all these, these people who are in, you know, Pence. And every time the guy comes in the room, he wants to clap. He wants people to, I mean, people had to stand up for Stalin for our, I mean, almost an hour and not, you would not want to be the first person to stop clapping. You know, it's, it was that, it was, I don't even want to say bad, bad because that was just the reality of it, but people act like this is new. No, if you go back and look at history, we've been here, but also we've have the history to show us how we got out of it. Everyone in the hashtag call the scene community shares the same common beliefs based on a set of four specific guiding principles. One, Tech is not neutral, nor is it apolitical. Two, intention without strategy is chaos. Three, lack of inclusion is a risk and increasingly a crisis management issue. And lastly, but most importantly, four, we must prioritize the most vulnerable. To find out more about the guiding principles and adding them to your Twitter profile banner, please visit hashtag causeascene.com. But also we have the history to show us how we got out of it. Yeah, I, 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 I don't. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sitting. Here, I'm not going to sit here and say that I th- think that there is some bottom below mm-hmm. which this president and the people around him would not go. I, I, I just don't know that there is any. I don't. Th- and, and, and this has been interesting when coming up when people are like, that's why I was happy we didn't have a blue wave. <laughs> that's why I was happy. We I'm actually happy we have this president because. Again, I got tired of why are you talking about racism 
we dealt with that in the 60s. We've had a black president for eight years. So that kind of pushed the, a lot of that out because a lot of white people that I've talked to only recognize that there was an that you and I are having a, a different experience after he was elected. Something about that moment was like, oh, wow, there's there's when we've been screaming about this forever. Um, and I would not be surprised that he does not get elected again because the people in power, whiteness is not, it's not feeling it yet. It's still, I still see the complacency, the, the, the individuals who see that there's a problem and yet refuse for whatever reasons to do anything. And that's why I, I wanted you to tease out why you did this show, because for you being in public radio, that was, that was a, a, a natural progression to do a podcast. There's um, a, a, a guy who um, just this week, and this will air later, but just this week, past week, um, a, a sitting member in Congress has been threatened and he started a, um, he started a chain where if you saw anybody on Twitter, um, um, saying anything to, to threaten her, add that to the tweet so that they can, so they can uh, report it. And now people, uh, people, um, uh, Two of the people are actually educators, so their principals are now involved. Um, he just told me that the um, they used that because he told turned it into moments. They've been able they took that to make a case that she needed more Secret Service. So they didn't believe it at first. So because he put that together, but he's a tech security guy, so that made sense to him. Everybody can make a make a make a stand wherever they wherever their their area of expertise or comfortability is. We, are, we cannot do all of this the same way because it doesn't happen the same way. But if we keep coming at it from different ex- places and exposing it, it does not have, it will not survive in the light. That's what, I guess that's what I'm saying. We just need to put light on it, just expose it and expose, expose it for what it is. And that's been my frustration is that, People are like, yeah, I see it, but I don't know what to do. I feel so guilty. I don't need you to feel guilty. Guilty is not helping me. <laughs> I need you to take action. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and that is, I guess, another piece of the my answer to the first question about how I came to do it was that I did I did feel. Uh, uh, let's just say I I I felt um, fortunate, especially. Um, so seeing white actually started coming out into the world just a few weeks after the inauguration in 2017. So I, I did feel, uh, I was thankful that, that I, I felt like I was doing something that was a response because, because I, I, I'm not, an, I'm not, I have done a little bit of investigative reporting in my life, but, but I'm not like a, you know, I'm not like a Washington Post investigative reporter who was going to be out there trying to figure out what happened with the Russians or, you know, there are other ways that a journalist could be responding more directly, but given what I do and the, and the, and the kind of smallish to medium sized platform that I have with this podcast, um, to be able to res- to be responding in some way that felt like, all right, so this is, this is a really a deep look into how we got here and, and to, 
and to what's going on here. Um, that that felt, it somehow just felt right. And I was glad that I was doing that and I wasn't doing a series about like, you know, Southern writers or something. Or <laughs> and, and, but, but I'm going to, um, I'm going to, and I don't, I don't know how to put this, but I don't think you understand. And this is not, again, I don't give white people credit until they do something. I don't think you understand how providing this historical, historical perspective was so missing and need it. You filled a gap with this that I had not seen. And I will be 50 next month. You filled a gap that I, that has answered so many questions for so many black people walking this earth. I mean, in, in the United States, like all that right there in itself. And it's not to put you on a pedestal or anything. That was, is that is what that work was. So yes, I, I, I applaud those investigative journalists. But again, everybody has their role to play. And this fit a very specific need that was missing. Because you brought researchers and educators together who I never would have met. I never would have been in contact with. Um, and that's one really thing I love about social media and Twitter. I get to engage with so many people that I never would have engaged with, even knew existed. And the fact that I got to be exposed to Dr. Candy and buy his book, um, I'm not even going to mess up. Ch Ch what was your host, your co-host? <coughs> Chenjirai Kumanika. Yes. Chenjirai Kumanika. I really want him on the podcast. He was phenomenal. Yeah. Talking about his experiences as a black man and also doing this work. Because that's another thing that that people don't understand. Because as I'm doing the work that I'm doing to improve tech, I'm also dealing with my own internal trauma mm -hmm. of learn. And so it's like this twofold thing. And so without your words, these podcasts, their words. I would be triggered and trying to calm myself and not saying, no, you're not going to do that anymore because this is why you're not going to do that anymore. And this is what you're going to do instead, because this is the roots. This is all of this is rooted in white supremacy. I don't care what it is. When we talk about tech, the reason our our AI is biased because we and is because it's rooted in white supremacy. Only people who get to make the decisions are white people. I mean, it's so it's so. When I started seeing it, I saw it everywhere, and it was answers to, it was answers to questions that I. It was like running on the hamster wheel. But once I got these answers, I got off the hamster wheel because I get it. This is what this is. So it's like I get that white people haven't um, been exam haven't examined their their um their their whiteness or anything and they're the default good and all this other stuff that's i get it i empathize but at this point we just don't care because now you're you're really harming people and for the first time you're seeing the harm where we've just been saying it so what i say about trump and 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 everything that's going on right now not just trump because people want to just that's another thing don't just talk about trump because He's he's just a pimple, the outside visible pimple of what the hell's been going on. Um, I wanted to talk to you about, I definitely want to talk to you about men, but that documentary series, one thing that really got me was watching um, Saving Capitalism by Robert Reich. And he, and if you haven't seen the Powell memo, hmm. um, 
the Powell memo is from the the Chamber of Commerce from 1971. Yes, I have seen it. Every freaking thing. That was a game. That was a game. That was a uh, uh, the 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 play <laughs> of how they shifted all of this, and you can see it. And so um, this is what I'm like. Please stop saying it's him. And, and once we get rid of him, it's going to change. No, we need to dismantle the systems that enabled him to be where he is. Yeah. Period. Yes. No, I, I agree with you absolutely. Um, he's a he is a particularly. Um, distasteful effect of a cause. <laughs> and that's another thing. That is another thing. It was like, oh my God, it, was, it wasn't a mistake. These people didn't make a mistake. It was designed this way. And so I saw that. And that's when we, you and I had that Twitter thing. I was like, yeah, I think you've got a connection here with the race and, and the patriarchy. So let's talk about how that moved into the men series. Right. So, right. So after um, seeing white um, and, and I, you know, it, it's not like that was a basically a race. I mean, we once we started putting out seeing white, the episodes weren't made for the most part. And some of the key interviews had been done, but um, it, it was a kind of scramble to get them out every two weeks. And there was no planning ahead, in other words, uh, about what was going to happen next. And we sort of took a breath and then it was like, well, what's the next series going to be? And, and because of the response to seeing white, that really did shift um, my, my understanding of what seen on radio was going to be going forward, which is it's going to be, we're going to do these series and it's going to be really kind of for the time being, at least, you know, this kind of, these kind of deep dives into uh, big, big questions. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, so there were, there were two or three kind of ideas about what the next series would be. And, and then it was a little bit like, um, you know, it was a little bit of a parallel to, to how I decided to do seeing white, you know, where there was kind of all this stuff and you're thinking about, should I do this thing about what? And then all of a sudden like Trump gets nominated for president. Yeah. Okay. We got to do the whiteness thing. (laughs) So, so, you know, what happened with, um, with man was it was around the time it was fall 2017 with the Harvey Weinstein revelations and, and the, uh, and the um, me too thing really blew open. And it was like, okay, that was around the time that I was needing to make the decision about the next series. <laughs> and I thought, All right. It's going to be the patriarchy thing. Sure enough. And, and then, you know, so then in, the, in a, in a kind of parallel way, right. In the way that it wasn't, I could have said seeing, seeing patriarchy or seeing, mm-hmm. but, but I just, no, you put it in the face. You just put, I thought, I thought a more, it was just a more fun title to just say man, capital M E N. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that, that in a similar way we were going to look at it's because, you know, it isn't it interesting how journalists, a lot of times when they're talking about sexism and gender issues, it'll be called women's issues. Mm-hmm. 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 Right. <laughs> That's crazy. It's mm-hmm. men's issues. So so in a similar way, it felt like that the world was kind of saying that at the same time, like, dudes, <laughs> come on. So let's get could you give us a a um, a description of that series? OK, so it's a 12 part series um, in that in this case, I collaborated with. So we mentioned Chenjerai Kumanika, who's an African-American uh, media scholar at Rutgers, who was my kind of conversational partner for this whole Seeing White series. Uh, for men, I worked with um, 
uh, uh, Celeste Headley, who's a longtime public radio reporter. She's um, written a book or two. She does uh, talks. She's a speaker. And um, she's a, you know, a fierce feminist. And so she became, and, and, and because, because she's a longtime uh, radio host as well, I decided, you know, for, in this case, let's just make her full-fledged kind of co-host. So um, she's involved in, you know, sort of the early parts of the episodes as well. And then we kind of have conversations toward the end. So it's similar in that I felt a need, like, you know, I, in both cases, it's sort of like, I think it's important for white people in the one case and for men in the other case to be doing this work and not just leaving it to people of color and to women to, you know, to do the work of telling the truth about these things. But on the other hand, I'm, you know, suspect, um, not only from a standpoint of perception, but in reality, <laughs> that I'm going to have blind spots and there are things I'm not going to see because I'm part of the privileged group, the, right, the group that it's the top of the hierarchy that gets all the benefits. So in each case, I felt like I needed somebody to kind of check my work and, and just to help me unpack things and bring the perspective of, you know, the other side of the fence to, to those, to those conversations. Celeste is also a woman of color, by the way, um, identifies as, as black and mixed race and also has some native American, um, well, I was going to say, I think not, not in the, uh, not, well, I was going to say not in the Elizabeth Warren sense. That's what, but that was so funny about that was that, that I know there is, I have Native American um, on both sides of my family. Mm. And because, I, and I'm, I'm in Georgia with Cherokees or I'm part Cherokee. Yeah. There is, because I have no tie to them, I never have thought of. Right. And and I know I have more than what she has. And we have never thought of getting those opportunities. And that's just shows about whiteness and privilege, because you will you will use anything, even if you've denigrated it in the past to benefit. If it can benefit you, you would turn it and use it for yourself. And that's just and we would never no one in my family, no one I know who's Part, because so many people in Georgia are, so many blacks are, as well as whites, because somebody got raped by. Um, there's so much of that, and we never would have used that. But one thing that just popped in my head, oh, please say his name again, Chindrai. Did I say it right? Chindrai. When he said, and you kind of were stumped about whiteness being good, and could it ever be good? Something like that. Was that, yeah, he said. He said, "When when was whiteness good?" It's sort of like when was America great? And he and he, he kind of confronted me with, you know, I don't know. He said, "I I don't envy you having to wrestle yeah. with with how there can be good whiteness." Yes. And then we, a few episodes later, we revisited it and kind of unpacked that and talked about it. And that is what I, I mean. That's what I can when you talk about whiteness and and men. I get it. You. You, it could, I know it feels like someone's taking something from you or you're losing something or, or, or you just feel guilty and all these other things. My point is you're never going to be, well, I'm going to be careful about the gender. You're never going to be not white. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, There's no getting around it. Yeah. And, and, and even if you 
quote unquote loss, you you don't lose. I've had so many white guys come up to me and they who are really active in this. When and when they really became active was when they did something. Something pissed them off or something, and they're like, "Fuck it, I'm just gonna say something." And no one pushed back, and they were like, "Oh my god, you're right. Nothing happened to me." And that's when they realized. Nothing will happen to me. I can say things that you can never say and get away with it. And that's what I want white men, white and men to understand when you, the best thing you can do to aid marginalized communities is to amplify their voices and to speak out because nothing happens to you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The the system just as if as the system has made black people, you know, that's why I say screw for civility because it's it's optional for white people but it's the expected behavior of of blacks. Yeah. Just as they, we've had those things ingrained in us, you've had these things ingrained in you that if you balk at the system, if you challenge the system, something will happen to you. But it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And honestly, I have not taken, a, I have not really taken all that much uh, trolling or shit for these, for these series. There's some, but not that much, nothing compared to what I see people of color and women on, even just on Twitter, this, this the harassment and the vitriol that people who put up, you know, people who speak about these things, women, people of color, it's relentless, right? And I and I didn't really get that much. The the only time that uh, we put out a, a couple of Facebook ads, right, that goes kind of beyond the the choir. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that you know, and then there were some white people out here who saw this thing show up in their feed, and they kind of lashed back because they just got that it was criticizing. You know, that it was taking a critical look at whiteness and white people. They're like, ah, you know, hell with you, right? libtard you know whatever um but there really wasn't all that much and and to keep it to say a little bit more to uh, about the men series you know um specifically there was an episode uh that we did about empathy which is a term that was coined by um kate mann she's a, a philosophy professor at cornell who has this book it's got a lot of attention it's called down girl the logic of misogyny but she coined this term empathy, which is to give a name to the phenomenon of men being not punished for mm-hmm. shitty things that men, that they do, especially the things they do to women, including rape and sexual assault and sexual harassment. And, and, and it was amazing because our episode that we called empathy came out the same week that, um, the Brett Kavanaugh hearings were happening and that he was being approved for the Supreme court after being, you know, very credibly accused of attempted rape when he was a teenager. People and people, there was a lot of people who came to his defense, you know, so it, so it just dramatized, dramatized it. Yeah, man, we get away with so much. Just so much. And it's like, can it, use that <laughs> for other people. That one thing, if you could use, amplify our voices, pay us. Okay, I'm going to add that in there. Pay us and you and speak out, not speak for us, but speak out when you see something that would be like completely amazing. Mm-hmm. 
Completely amazing. In our last few uh, moments, I really would like to hear about this document. Can you talk about the next series? Next, are you, can you say share something? Yeah. What would I say? Um, basically, the frame is to look at um, a democracy in the United States, and to what extent are we a democracy? How democratic or undemocratic? Uh, we know that we're. I think most people who are not completely asleep get that we are in a genuine crisis with our democracy now and wondering whether we're going to have the democracy even that we've had, you know, two or three years from now. Um, so that's an obvious kind of entry point again, but, but, you know, was, was this, to what extent, um, was this country built to actually, uh, share power and the economic spoils and so on with quote unquote, the people, Mm-hmm. Um, and to kind of take a trip, a trip through American history with that frame, like look at the ways in which, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's well known, of course, that at the time of the founding, when the constitution was written, only a fraction of white men could vote. Yeah. Um, uh, so we know that, and it took 150 years and a civil war and a, and a, women's movement and so on and then all the way up to 1965 before you even on paper you know had most people able to vote but there's so much more to democracy than who can vote as well so um so it's still very much in the kind of research and planning stages and it's probably going to be late 2019 at the earliest okay uh, okay. that it's going to start to come out have you seen uh requiem for american dream by Norm Chomsky. Uh, I think I did. Yes, yes, I did. I took, I bring that up because I um I did a little live about that, and he talks about again the history that we we think this thing is, but when you look at the that is this thing is not what that thing is, you know, and it's not that way for a lot of different reasons. Um, that again we've been we're ignorant. By design, you know, it's been all ignorant by design. So in your last moments, what would you like to say? Oh, <laughs> well, I'm touched. I'm genuinely touched, Kim, by um, by the invitation and by <laughs> by all the kind words for, for what we've tried to do. Ginger, I will be tickled out to share this with him. Uh, uh, Ginger, I want you on the show. Please come on. <laughs> Yeah, he could talk about his own podcast, Uncivil, and other stuff. And the reason I bring, and I want to say this before you say your last word, is the reason I bring so many, um, I I talk about race and gender and and, um, these things on this show is because, and and stay in tech, is because tech is touching everything. Mm. And we need to do a better job in the tech space and there's so just like the writer population, there's so many people who are making decisions who are ignorant. And so I feel that this podcast is about not only challenging the status quo in tech specifically about AI and those things, but helping people understand where these things come from. They did not come out of the out of the ethers. These things have been planned and we continue. We cannot continue to make decisions um, and create products and services with this idea that whiteness and men are the the arbitrators of what is right without ever thinking about 
the things that they're doing that are causing harm to marginalized communities. And so that's why I talk about these things. I've been able to really, I, and again, because of this podcast and the understanding of the economics about this, it really helped me say, it is all right for me to talk about these things. It is a imperative that I talk about these things because if not, it doesn't girt my conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess what I would maybe uh, close with is that, that I think in a way the takeaway, uh, a key takeaway, I think for both of these series for me and that I hope that, that we tried to convey is that, um, you know, these things, it needs to be an imperative for more of us and particularly those of us who are, <clears throat> who are the beneficiaries of these systems, white people and men. Um, you know, I, I, there's, there's a tendency to sort of say, well, I'm, a, I'm sympathetic. I'm sympathetic to people of color. I'm sympathetic to women. And I'm one of the good guys. And so that's, that's good, right? I'm good, like I said before. But we've got to, the, the systems are self-perpetuating. And they are systemic and they are institutional. And if, if they're, if they're really going to change, they're going to need some white folks and some men more, more getting involved and speaking up and, and driving the change alongside, right? People of color and women. We can't be bystanders anymore. It's not enough. Yeah. You have to take action. Yeah. You cannot. And, and, and I want to end on this and, and it's, it's, these systems are for the first time whiteness and men are seeing what I call these systems are parasites. And for the first time it's eaten its host. Mm. It's now once if, if marginalized people are the canaries in the minefield, we're all, we've already been screaming at this point. It's not even, we're just like, whatever. Now it's coming after you. (laughs) And if not, if, if you, and I don't even care if it's nothing other than self-preservation. If you say self, because if if you preserve yourself by by recognizing that when the most vulnerable of us are taken care of and safe, everybody else is, that helps. Yeah. Well, and and that leads me to say one more thing, which is I think that there has <clears throat> the, a lot of the problem, and I think you still see this with people who get offended or push back or is that there's a zero sum game and that if that if you know since white men have been getting most of the goodies for 400 years that giving you know giving that up means that you know that that it's just going to flip right mm-hmm. and that we're going to be at the bottom you know and, and black women are going to be running the world and we'll be oppressed and that's i think that's not mostly what black women and right marginalized are really arguing for it's more like we could act could we actually have a a just society that takes care of everybody Mm -hmm. a whole lot better so that yes yes men have to give up and men and and white people have to give up some uh some goodies and some benefits and some privileges but it doesn't mean that we have to be quote unquote kind of losers or that we're gonna then be destitute and be you know, it, it, we we could create a world that just treats everybody a whole lot better. And and on, on to end with that, I think I'm going to go beyond that. I think some of the fear, some of the genuine fear, is not just the destitute, but they will then be treated as they've been treating others. That is a fear. That is a fear that 
I've been discriminating. I have been harming. I have been doing all these other things. And they're going to turn that against me. Because we've seen that in history when, when, oh, we don't have to go that far back. When you look at how Germany went into Russia um, and, and, and how they treated those individuals and when Russia got the upper hand and what they did to those individuals, um, that is a fear. Um, and as you said, I, I I can only speak for myself as a black woman. All I want to do is make life better for myself and the people around me that I care about. Um, and I can't speak for anybody else, but there are not the majority of us who are out here looking to to harm. We just want to be we want to stop being harmed <laughs> because I was talking about this on a um, podcast earlier that I recorded today. Um, I don't know if you saw that tweet, but a black woman, when people like being political, she's like, raising my child is political. It pretty much everything is. It, yes, de- yes, definitely. Thank you so much for taking this time. This has been so amazing. I am so giddy. <laughs> I'm so giddy. You just don't know. And good to kind of meet you and, and yes, have a conversation yeah. after, after quote unquote, seeing each other on Twitter for a couple of yeah. years. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the hashtag cause the scene podcast. And I'd like to thank all our current sponsors of the podcast and the hashtag cause the scene movement. Of course, we strongly encourage everyone to become an individual sponsor of the hashtag cause the scene community. Just visit the website at hashtag cause the scene.com to sign up today. On behalf of everyone here at Hashtag Call the Scene, we'd like to thank you again for listening to today's show and have a wonderful day.